Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I am here today in another excessive day of uh, self-isolation slash quarantine. Today, I thought it would be really good to reach out to my good friend, Norm Schwab. He is a partner at LightSwitch in San Francisco. Thank you so much for making the time to sit and chat with me today, Norm. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Absolutely. So I am reaching out to you because you and I are in a situation where, despite our dizzying busy schedule when the when the industry is in some semblance of normalcy we're we're pretty busy but now with our industry being turned off with the the hard reset for a while i would imagine that the both of us we're even more busy being at home there's a lot of people i see that are busying themselves with so many learning and so many webinars and being online and so many different things to maintain their their busy life but uh for you i would imagine when you're at home you have to work exponentially harder than when you're out on the road or out out at uh on the show floor um i mean that's true i think um i mean the, we now live in sonoma county um up near uh petaluma if anybody knows the northern california area it's sort of wine country farmland and the emphasis on sustainability. I mean, just really great quality of life. It, it's probably, you know, an hour commute from our office in Sausalito. So it was definitely a lifestyle choice to move this far north. And we've been slowly but surely, our, my partner and I have been uh, rescuing animals. And now we have what I call the 68-leg ranch, um, which is actually, we just, begot, <laughs> we just got four more legs uh, over the weekend. And uh, it started out with uh, rescuing greyhounds. Um, we're now up to eight greyhounds. Um, you know, we work with a greyhound rescue group, uh, Golden State Greyhounds. And I don't know how many people know the story of greyhounds, but effectively, you know, they're, they're, they're it's almost a, a, a sport that's died out, but that's both uh, good in some ways, but bad because all of a sudden the tracks are closing. A lot of greyhounds are available and they race them from 18 months to five years. And then there's a lot of life left in them and they didn't necessarily keep them alive after the five years. So our group helped. Then after that, we moved on to miniature horses and not moved on. We have have miniature horses as well. We rescued a bunch from a petting zoo that closed down. And now we went out looking after the fires for some big horses, full-size horses. And we got two full-size horses. It's really grown organically as as I call it. And now we have neighbors that have sheep and uh, one of our neighbors was a very much kind of let nature take its course and we're not like that. So when two of them became sick, we rescued those and 
now we're so now we're up to eight greyhounds, five horses, and three sheep <laughs> in our small little enclave. That is a lot of work. Yeah, and and again, my partner, you know, who was she was in the entertainment industry, corporate business, and got fed up with it, and smartly kind of. Uh, chose a, a better life um you know she's the smart one um you know meanwhile though i still love what i do and enjoy lighting and and growing light switch but um you know taking that hour drive home and ending up in this beautiful place surrounded by farmland and vineyards and these amazing animals that need cared for because they're all rescues they very often they have some kind of additional care that's needed whether it's you know physical or mental and um, it's a lot of work. And, and certainly when I'm traveling on the road, you know, in our normal before COVID, you know, I was traveling easily half the year, you know, in, you know, easily, you know, internationally, nationally, you know, or even doing a show down in Cupertino where I'd be an hour away or two hours away, but I'd be gone for a month in a hotel down in Cupertino. So, I mean, it's as good as being mm-hmm. gone. So I would contribute as much as I could, but now that I've been forced to be home, I'm contributing a lot more and it kick both kicks my ass, um, the work, <laughs> the hard work, um, but it's fulfilling. I mean, it's just amazing. I think we're all sort of taking this time during COVID to think about what, you know, our priorities are, what's important. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have been. I absolutely have been. I, <laughs> I, I have definitely learned that the nine to five go to an office, sit in a chair for eight hour lifestyle does not suit me. Yeah. I, well, I think a lot of us finished that breakfast. a long time ago. Yeah. I, I finish breakfast with my kids. I give my wife a hug and a kiss and my, my kids a pat on the head and a kiss on the forehead. And I walk the 10 feet to my office and I sit here and I reach out to people, which is amazing. That's the part I love, but sitting in the same chair for, eight hours is doesn't suit us. We're not of that cloth. I would imagine we're a different breed. No, I've never had the closest. I think, I think in high school, I worked at a restaurant as a busboy and never worked harder than that ever. So I went, you know, in a way like going, I this is kicking my ass. I need a job that I can control and be, you know, kind of not be, you know, not fuck off. Certainly we work hard, but it's, we enjoy it so much that I don't feel it's, you know, you know, it goes back and forth. I think we all, you know, we have our ideal jobs and working and, you know, projects and positions and all that. But in reality, I think when it comes down to it, you know, I, I look forward to working in, in, in this business, whatever this mm-hmm. business is now. And, but I also now have learned about balance too, you know, fulfillment and, you know, I mean, caring for others. We don't, we don't have children. So what we have is animals are the closest thing. And I think, vet bills seems to equal college bills we're trying to (laughs) you could do the math i don't know but um certainly financially you know it might be equal who knows but and and having animals is kind of like having um kids that never get beyond two years old (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you're you're rescuing animals too so i mean you're constantly bringing in more people Mm -hmm. and spreading your love wider and yeah. thinner and you, you just keep adding to your responsibility. It's organic. It's very organic. I can tell you that it used to be too. That Like if I was gone for more than 30 days, that was kind of like, you know, it'd be like, okay, you were gone. I'd come back. There'd be another animal. Now it's kind of like you've been home for 30 days. So 
<laughs> you know, okay, at the end of 30 days, like, you know, it's like kind of like, you know, when are you coming back? When are you going away? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, like I said, I, I, uh, I love it. I, I completely love it and I'm open to it. And I, uh, there's no, we haven't said there's a stop to it other than, you know, room and this house, like I said, our grounds are, you know, it, it's not a huge plot of land, but it's really built for animals. We have eight dog beds in every room of the house. <laughs> That's you never have a dull moment with that many animals in the house or around no, the house. That's I'm looking at one sleeping on my bed right now. <laughs> so that got started with greyhounds. Did you have a greyhound first and then somebody reached out? He's like, Hey, do you need more greyhounds? Because there's no, animals that need help. We were doing benefits actually for this animal care and control. Uh, group in San Francisco, they're kind of like animal on Animal Planet. There's those animal cops, and they're usually animal care and control, and they are funded by the city. But then um, this group in San Francisco raises money that enables them to not have to euthanize any animals. So the money that's brought in through donations allows them to not, you know, put away any animals. And we've been doing benefits, and we did this, you know, kind of show around Halloween. Of course, had a pet costume contest and we got heavily involved in one of there was a greyhound group that started coming to that and we just fell in love with them and then got one and then before you know we hooked up with this golden state greyhound and then before you know it it was we're addicted and you know both for the cause but they're just great you know beautiful creatures mellow stunning you know interesting and just the story is so amazing so yeah, there, there's so many people that have just not treated their greyhounds with any respect. They've just get put them on the track, and then they once they're not taking first, second, or third, they just they do whatever they can to get rid of them as yeah. as expediently as possible. It's a commodity. I mean, horse racing is the same way, sadly. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've discovered here too. But you know, we have one of our horses as a thoroughbred. And, you know, we originally went looking for horses that were abandoned in the, you know, Northern California fires. But in looking for them, we found other horses that were just unwanted from racetracks or farms or, you know, that, um, you know, there's always animals that people, I think that's a big concern now with COVID. So many people are getting pets and animals while they're, you know, cooped up in their house. And the concern is when we all go back to work, are people still going to want all these pets? And, you know, it's, it's. You know, that that's there's always a rescue in need. So that's that's what yeah. we've found. You know, there's always is in of any type of animal. Well for the most part. <laughs> Maybe even bats or pangolins or whatever. <laughs> Civets. Yes, yeah. exactly. God. Yeah, if only we could just learn to leave leave the bats and the civets <laughs> and the just leave them alone. They don't uh, need us. Yeah. They, they definitely don't need to end up in a wet market anywhere. So just Mm-hmm. If people would just leave them alone yeah but no but again i think the key is it's it's about balance and the animals have definitely given me a good sense of balance in life i mean a lot of things have but that's definitely it also keeps me in better shape you know we're shoveling the you know horse poop of five horses will put you in will kick your ass and feeding them you know whatever six times a day you know uh-huh. <laughs> For all my listeners who can't see Norm, he has a very impressive farmer's tan going on right now, which is something that is a rare commodity in the in the lighting industry where we all just sit in the dark for 
20 hours at a time for anybody to have a farmer's tam you're like a unicorn right now that's it's <laughs> impressive perfect uh so what was the step from going from dogs to small ponies <laughs> how did because uh, you, you're mean, out of the house at that point you're you're building fences and yeah know, no feed, that, that just feed came, lots. i'm not sure i mean i think we've always been interested we've seen a lot of miniature horses I think we literally got a call from someone. I mean, I think that's Teresa, my partner, just knew people. I think once they, you know, the people know that you're in the market for rescuing animals, they all of a sudden will call you. And there was a petting zoo that had been the, the owner, one of the, the, the husband died and the wife was taking care of it. And they were not abusing, but neglecting the horses. And there were 20 miniature horses that became available and were confiscated by the sheriff. And Teresa got a call saying, we've got these horses. Can you come down? And I think it was like we were having a birthday party for me of all things. It was like right around my birthday. And we ran down to this corral and we got there and the person said, oh, oh, you came so late. All the good ones are gone. And we said, we don't want the good ones. You know, we want the ones that nobody wants. You know, we want the ones that that people, you know, that need homes. And that's kind of, I think that's really our motto. You know, we want, you know, we want to take care of the forgotten animals. And, uh, you know, and again, greyhounds aren't forgotten, but these these horses were not in great shape, but they had a lot of love. And Teresa's mm-hmm. put, you know, Teresa and, and friend, they put so much time and effort into them with diets and medicine and vets. The vets, you know, that's the one thing is whenever we pull up to any vet these days, they, they cheer, like, we're going to make our quarter. we have a wing you know the the wing in honor of us at vca and you know but um you know it's it it, like i said it was um they're just amazing creatures and miniature horses live up to 40 40 years old so yeah um you know and then like i said from there it just kept growing and you know Teresa was raised with horses like full-grown horses too and I'd never been around horses at all. And we fostered an Arabian horse at one point and I completely fell in love with this Arabian. Just, just, and I kind of, once you understand, and I did all the funny things like go to YouTube and, you know, understand how do you, you know, react, how do you, how do you become, you know, friends with a horse? How do you react? What is, how do you speak horse? And that was really amazing to learn and then try it out of understanding just how to greet them, how to behave around them, how to not get stepped on. I mean, our one Rex, our one horse is 17 hands high. And he's a, if you know, I mean, he's gigantic. His ass, his butt is higher than my head. Um, And he's just a monster, but he's the gentlest puppy dog you've ever been around. And, you know, again, I with, I've never was raised around horses at all. And so, but have completely learned about it and just doing that alone is like it opens expands my brain away from lighting and billing and you know (laughs) focus charts and what a learning curve you must have had to go through to go from lighting i I believe you have an edge your entire background is in lighting you were you went to school for lighting you went to I, i pretty much have been doing lighting hopefully i've gotten good at it when i was 15 i mean i kind of i went to a summer acting um, program in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, my friends 
said, let's try this out. And I think at the time I was struggling through high school, you know, not knowing what I wanted to do, doing, you know, smoking enough pot or whatever, and maybe doing track and field, I think was the, you know, the biggest thing I was, you know, most responsibility and kind of found the theater community. Um, you know, I think that's what I loved about theater really was the community, uh, the, the people, the camaraderie, the, you know, the, the sense of play, um, the sense of a family. Um, and, but I didn't really like to put on makeup or learn lines. So the director there said, oh, I've got this, you know, you should try this thing called lighting. And he put me and he was moving over into a small community theater and kind of threw me at lighting. I was 15 and it kind of turned me around and he was going to Carnegie Mellon and he said, well, if you want to keep doing this, you have to A, do well in school, have a portfolio and you can get into Carnegie and we can keep playing. And, and I kind of got my act together in high school. It kind of kicked my ass and, you know, made me figure out what I wanted to do in life and, and work toward having, building this portfolio and doing well in school. Got into Carnegie Mellon um, as in drama. And then I think, lo and behold, right as I was about to get into Carnegie, I was doing um, lighting for bands, you know, kind of local bands in the Bay Area. And we, um, one of the bands I was working for um, got a chance to open up for Van Halen. And we toured briefly with Van Halen and I fell in love with doing music and rock and roll. And I actually went to Carnegie and asked for a one-year deferment. And kept going doing bands and lighting and kind of got into that world had a small lighting company which i'll never do again <laughs> that's a lot of work yeah i owned gear i owned park hands and oh my god that's just a, like i said I, I learned after that never own gear um but did that then went to carnegie a year later in drama and lighting had an amazing you know that that was an amazing educational experience both from you know, just being, I mean, it was in Pittsburgh where I lived, so I didn't go that far away for school. So it was also interesting, um, which was probably good because at the time we probably couldn't have afforded it. But, you know, just being immersed into that world of Carnegie Mellon at the time, just both the people, but also the hard work. I mean, they really just kicked your ass with work. Um, I, you know, never, probably never, or it got me ready because I'd never, I think work after Carnegie was never, you know, was never as hard. I mean, we'd go to class and then do crew at night and then you'd do your homework when you got off crew at 11. So you'd do your homework from 11 till two or three in the morning and had to mix that in with partying and, <laughs> and everything else and social. And I mean, that was the kind of cool thing about Carnegie at the time is the, there was, there was so much happening and um, both in the fine arts department, um, you know, but also in robotics and software and all these amazing things that, and, and there was really, I think we'd, we'd learn our most, the most things we'd learn would be late at night, you know, after we'd be doing our homework and we'd wander around, we'd take a break and we'd run into musicians or artists or then wander and my friend's doing this robotics thing. And this was fledgling robotics, you know, in the early eighties, you know, or, you know, 1980s back in the 20th century. And, but we'd go, you know, kind of sneak in and see what these people were doing and learn. And a lot of it, they, they called it at the time, or at least afterwards, actually, they called it the Da Vinci effect in that all these groups that were learning and kind of, you know, meeting socially, like there was no classes, but everyone was doing it organically and socially and learning about what everybody was doing. And it was kind of inhabiting 
you know, um, you know, our DNA. And, and I think that's later what we've tried to bring in all, you know, into light switch into a variety of other things. So that is one of the most important parts of being in the university setting is where you go to your class, somebody else goes to their class, you meet in the quad and you're like, Oh, well, you know about robotics and I know about lighting. Why don't we let's yeah. work on something here together. I think I need you to develop an app for my lighting thing. And uh, next thing you know, you've got a product that you can. Yeah. And you can the, try to, you can try to force it, but I think it's better when it does happen kind of, I mean, I don't know. That's, mm -hmm. I think it was just being, um, you know, we explored, we were curious. So is that what brought you from Pittsburgh to California? Well, I was able to, at the time, um, Carnegie offered, I think they still do, but they offered a semester internship. Unbelievable. You know, you pay for a, a semester of college to go work at somebody's places. And I think at the time I applied to um, show lights at the time, which was a huge thing, C Factor and FM. And I think because one of our alumni was what owned FM and a lot of alumni were going there. You know, a lot of people convinced me that that was the place to go. And I had never gone west of the Mississippi in my, in my life. We'd traveled, you know, a fair amount for, for vacations, but I'd never been to Europe, never been west of the Mississippi. So I kind of hit, you know, San Francisco and was like, oh, my God, I'm not in Pittsburgh anymore. <laughs> and uh, went to intern at, at FM Productions, which at the time was, um, and, and it's amazing how many people that I talk to now don't even know who he is, but it was owned by Bill Graham, the concert promoter. And I, I talked to, you know, the majority of anybody under 40, and they have no idea who Bill Graham was, which, or, which is really sad. Other than the, the auditorium, but, that's all they know of him. Exactly, exactly. But there's just a incredible, you know, and this is me being an old guy, but I think, you know, the lack of sense of history, I think these days mm -hmm. really scares me. But um, but Bill Graham was this, you know, one of the preeminent concert promoters, really Fillmore East, Fillmore West, you know, Woodstock, a lot of these, you know, huge events um, that he, you know, was heavily involved in. Um, and he is, his production company was FM Productions. And at the time they were making the transition though, out of Bill Graham's hands into Tom Mendenhall's hands, who was, uh, you know, take, taking over the ownership. And, um, they put me into an internship where they put me in a couple weeks in every department. They were one of those full service shops that did scenery, lighting, um, soft goods, scene painting, drafting and design, accounting and I end up spending you know a couple of weeks in each thing really getting to understand how everybody worked I mean and it was an invaluable um, you know education because I, it got me once again it was kind of like Carnegie was really good in that they you didn't just do technical you learned about scene painting you learned about you know costume design you learned about acting and directing here I learned about every other department and really became sympathetic to how all these departments worked together. Um, and at the time, FM was really going through this massive transformation out of concerts into, um, you know, kind of the, the world of entertainment, what entertainment was becoming, you know, the infiltration of corporate shows, the infiltration of Olympic events becoming entertainment, um, you know, everything from, I think in, you know, um, in my first year there, 
we were doing the launch of the Macintosh computer, which I worked on. We worked on David Bowie's Serious Moonlight Tour. We worked on the opening and closing ceremonies for the Los Angeles Olympics. We worked on the Democratic National Convention. The Queen did this tour of the Bay Area. Um, you know, this, this was like in my first year there. Wow. And FM was wildly understaffed. So a lot of us got thrown into the deep end. And, you know, again, one of the best educations. Tom, you know, I owe so much of my career to Tom Mendenhall in that just the chance he took on, took on me, you know, with me and just, you know, kind of, you know, I was both his assistant and project managed a lot of projects, not even doing that much lighting at the time, but really kind of learning you know, the world from a whole different angle, which I thought was invaluable. I mean, I still did lighting, but it was really a great to see the world from other people's shoes and, and from a project management basis, understand how an entire operation had to work. You know, everything from budgeting, labor, you know, logistics, venue, you know, trucking, um, you know, everything. And it was, again, invaluable experience and learned on some of these really big projects as me being this little kid. <laughs> effectively mm -hmm. i call a little kid but you know it sounds like you're a part of the precursor to the live nations of the world where you, every they had their hands in a little bit of everything to make sure they mm -hmm. were diverse and they could handle so many different projects yeah and i don't think anybody even understood what the world was becoming yet you know it was just kind of you know people just saw this as oh my god you know i mean they saw it as survival but they also saw it as like oh my god there's these you know lighting and and sets and storytelling was starting to be used in everything you know that people hadn't even thought of as a line of business right i mean that's it's kind of now it's like you know i we look at all the work we're doing and i don't think i could have predicted oh there's some dogs <laughs> i couldn't couldn't have predicted a lot of the maybe half of the lines of work we're doing now i couldn't have predicted five years ago or ten years ago um Oh, I don't know if you can hear that. No, it's amazing that uh, I keep all that stuff in because I'm sure you'll hear my kids running through the house too. So. <laughs> no problem. It's not like we're a professional podcaster entertainers here. We're just two lighting guys. If there's some dogs, all the more the merrier. Yeah, the sound effects. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh the one dog in the room may go, oh, she's on the verge. No, oh, there we go. So all of this project management, do you think that's what helped lead to LightSwitch being the, the house I, that it is? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know I'm, we're taking a long way to get there, but um, after um, the project management, I got put in with, um, there was a gentleman at FM called Larry Hitchcock. I don't know how many people remember him, but he, at the time, he was one of the preeminent um, both salespeople of rock and roll sets and um, he also was um, kind of a designer stylist. So he was not just a salesperson, but he was almost a rock star himself, a personality. And he, though he was crazy in, in a good way, um, all over the place, you know, because he knew so many people and he was so brilliant and talented. And they, they, they said, you know, he needs an assistant. So I got thrown in kind of again, like, oh, shit, you know, we need someone to do this job. Oh, we'll get Norm to do it. He'll do it he'll jump in there. And I got literally, again, once again, thrown into the deep end of following Larry around um, while he was selling sets to the largest rock stars, you know, on the planet. And he's the kind of person that we would walk through the Burbank airport, or we'd be in the Chateau Marmont lobby, 
or the Sunset Marquee, and he'd run into like, you know, Jeff Beck or Chrissy Hind or whoever, he'd run into seven people. And before you knew it, we'd left that lobby with five jobs, you know, just by him running into people. And I'd literally be running behind him, taking notes and learning and, you know, kind of with my mouth open, like, oh my God, that's Jeff Beck. You know, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a little young kid. I was probably still only maybe 24, 25 at the time. And then, and then one of the coolest things is that Larry would very often sell more sets than he had time to do. So we had a very small design department at FM and we'd very often get a, a job that was due the next day. And between a few people, there was a gentleman named Tom Strand and a few others. And we would spend, you know, all night whipping together set designs for everything from the Eurythmics to Don Henley to Yes to the Cars with another set designer named Stephen Bickford or just these amazing, you know, it was such a great era. Both he was so successful and, the, you know, we were just starting to realize how fast people needed things. And, um, you know, before you knew it, I ended up personally designing the sets you know, because Larry didn't have time. So we would, you know, it's like, I need this set designed by tomorrow morning. And it would be like midnight. So we'd, we'd work all night and design something with either models or drawing. And, and before you knew it, I was a set designer for rock and roll and started to meet and get a lot of, you know, know a lot of people that way. And that sort of transitioned me into doing touring work. Eventually I left FM and started doing lighting for, of all people, the Bangles and the B-52s and Variety, uh, Thomas Dolby, and, um, you know, started having fun doing that for a while. And then somewhere along the line, I think actually doing a corporate job, met John Featherstone. John was, had, you know, was the lighting designer for the Smiths. And at some point, I think he had uh, discovered and fallen in love with Kathy in the United States and was trying to do anything he could to stay in the country um, and really, I think we started, you know, we hit, we, we hit it perfectly off as a friendship. Um, and we started to have these philosophical discussions about both, A, I know he wanted to stay in the country, but B, you know, as designers, um, you know, individual designers, we were struggling with everything from, you know, how do you, you start to become successful, how do you take it when all the work comes in and, you know, all of a sudden the work's at the same time, you know, okay, I've got seven mm -hmm. jobs, but they're all on the same day. How can I as an individual do it? Or also shows were starting to become larger and needed more people, designers, drafts, people set the, you know, per, you know, renders, all these people. And we started to try to, we, we, we came up with the idea of forming an organization, a design firm that was based around, a name of a company and not an individual so that, you know, we could kind of create a collective of people, you know, mm -hmm. you might say Bauhaus, you might say a few other, you know, kind of collectives, uh, though we just certainly didn't emulate them directly. But the idea was that we could create an entity that people could work for and not think they were doing Norm Schwab's work or John mm -hmm. Featherstone's work. We were creating, you know, here you, you hire light switch and you're just going to get good work. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, we've decided that, you know, why don't we collect individual designers um, to, to be part of this collective? It wasn't just John and I, it was, you know, kind of cities and offices that were run by designers. And then we've sort of, we've created this, you know, kind of slowly amassed this collective of six partners um, that some of them have changed over time, but 
Um, you know, and I think the, the, the fun thing about us is that we're both individual designers that have both different interests. Um, some people, you know, started out in theater, others started out in rock and roll, others started out in architecture. And we're really bringing that just as we did at Carnegie Mellon, we kind of, oh, what are you doing? What are you working on? How does that help what I'm doing? And, you know, really gain from that strength. Did I answer a question? Was there a question? I forget now. Yeah, no, I, we were, that, that is the transition from FM to, to light switch. And that is why you guys have to collectively build up the reputation of light switch and not just the reputation of Norm Schwab. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, you're it's, all it's, dependent on the reputation of light switch now, as opposed yep. to, yeah, know, no, and, uh, and it's a, it's a beast and it's, I think it's, it's, you know, we've had certainly growing pains over the years in terms of, you know, I mean, trying to get sometimes to get that collective to make a, you know, a decision is we've learned how to, you know, what, what decisions are important or how to um, work together collectively while maintaining, you know, maybe the independence of an individual office at times. Um, and, and that's been interesting. We've really learned how to work closer together, I think. Um, you know, over the last three or four years, I think we, we've also tried to make um, a point of, of making sure we bring in people that were younger than us. I think, you know, as I'm getting up into 60 and I think, you know, some of our members are slightly older than me and some are slightly younger, but, um, you know, I think Chris in LA was maybe our youngest, but we really kind of made a push to make sure that both in terms of partners, but also, we have a uh, Tyler Illich that's come along and he's a younger and his, his, um, you know, his strength has been in esports lately. And it was something I was really unfamiliar with. And we really thought it was important that we kind of infuse a little of um, youth. And there's been a big push in my office to um, try to, you know, make sure that we have younger voices and then and, and mm-hmm. give them a path to, to rise up and, and gain responsibility, but it's been great for me, you know. Plus, I I love to do things like go back to Carnegie and and teach and um, not really teach, but you know, I'll come back and do a lecture or something um, there. And it's just an amazing thing to both go there, get infused from you know students, and then bring them back to Light Switch either as an intern. Uh, we have a bunch now that have like started out as interns and now are employed with us. And, and it's just a great both giving back, but really reminding myself and making sure our company doesn't get to be just a bunch of old fuddy-duddies. <laughs> In addition to a diversity of age, do you appreciate having a diversity of talent as well? Does it benefit you to have your, have light switch in so many different industries? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, certainly, certain offices may or may not, you know, concentrate or may be as diverse. I think for the most part, we're trying to make sure that every office has a diversity. But I mean, I think that we've learned, I mean, right now, um, you know, and that's even pre-COVID, but just the, the, the input on what we call experiential and um, I like to call it uh, kind of art and technology and entertainment and everyday life. And that's mm-hmm. really been such a huge push for us. And a lot of it is really based upon, you know, taking events and entertainment and merging them with buildings and sites and theme parks and, you know, just literally understanding the, you know, uh, you know, I think that 
we're we're looking at and we we certainly and i certainly don't want things like theater and arenas and all these things to go away um but i think we've watched and learned that entertainment and and art and almost anywhere can become a venue mm-hmm. and i think that's only going to be more interesting now that we come out of covid um what is you know how soon are we going to be able to gather in groups of uh you know a hundred, let alone 10,000 or 50,000. How is that going to create? We all are hoping we're going to go back to the way it was. Maybe, maybe we are, maybe we aren't. And I don't think it's clear if we know what's going to come. We, we, we don't want to see concerts go away. We don't want to see our livelihood. You know, I think maybe the good thing is that we, we're not totally doing events. So not all of our work has gone away. Um, But you know, events are such a major part of it from a love, from an income level. But I think we have to start understanding that this may change. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what you think about it, but I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and some people are excited by it, but some people are scared. And I think I'm a little bit of both. <laughs> when I look at those events with, uh, they're doing raves where everybody's in their cars. I think I would go to that one time and then never again. I I appreciate the novelty of it, but that's not what concerts are for. That's not why we go to concerts. We don't go to sit in our car and look at them through a windshield. That's, that's so counterintuitive to the intention of concerts and, and live gatherings as a whole. That's, no, absolutely. Well, I think one of the things that we've, um, one of the, the pieces of work that, um, you know, the John Featherstone's office started with the Morton Arboretum, but then we started to spread and we did them in uh, L.A. and now San Francisco and Oklahoma and a few others are these kind of garden arboretum experiences. And they, um, you know, originally started out in Morton Arboretum in Chicago as um, basically they wanted a, a new spin on the, the holiday lighting idea and, and some way to get people there at night. Um, and in the winter when in Chicago, there's no leaves on the trees. So the idea was to create this really experiential, interactive um, walk through experience. And, and it actually works really well in the age of COVID if we have to, because you can be physically distanced, but it is all about um, performance and environment and, and DIY. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, things that you can control and create the art yourself. But you also can do it on your own time period. You, you know, I think there is definitely a change. We've watched a change in, in entertainment, you know, certainly the movies and theater, that people are less and less able to sit, you know, make an appointment and sit down in a seat for two hours at eight o'clock and watch something. They really kind of want to experience it on their own time frame, you know, with maybe their friends, their family, their whatever. And these experiences are actually really you know, they're not the answer, but they're an answer to what entertainment could be, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and they can have digital experiences or interfaces, but what we really love is the (laughs) non-digital interface, Um, you know, of the people wandering through nature um, and seeing it in a way they hadn't seen it before, if that makes sense, because most of these gardens aren't lit at night, Um, you know, and we almost create almost little art installations within them. I think that the infusion of public art and lighting in our world, we've really gotten to that as well. We love that, you know, whether we're the artists or the, you know, integrators or the curators, we've really enjoying the idea of 
showing how lighting can be a large part of um, public art. One of the things that I really enjoy about the photos from some of the, the light switch uh, garden uh, projects is seeing how you guys are using technology, not to highlight the technology, but to highlight the natural curves of the trees and the hillsides. And yes, there is digital lighting on the hill, but you'd never know it because you're, you're just mesmerized by the, the waving of the tree or projection mapping onto the trees. And, it, and you're more, your eye is drawn to the tree more than the lighting or the video. And yeah, well, it's enhancing something you know. Um, or in some cases of these gardens, people have been traveling to these gardens since they were children, right? And so mm -hmm. they know them and a lot of the gardens and the Arboretum experiences are fun because they're almost separated into scenes, um, whether it's old growth forests or the Japanese tea garden. And they have, they, they, they lend themselves really well toward enhancing the story, whether it's just, you know, um, enhanced naturalism, like we took the old growth forest or Chris did really, because Chris designed that and um, created almost created a world that made you feel like you were in Jurassic Park. You know, it, it varies very easily just by creating color and mystery in something you're used to and maybe, you know, didn't take, get the tie in or, um, you know, just creating some, in some cases it's very subtle in other cases, you know, there's a lake with moving lights and there's a joystick and a stump of wood and you, you know, people can operate the moving lights with the joystick or in other cases, John has done it in Morton where you can paint with the, you can paint lighting on the trees by waving your hand over a leap motion sensor and, you know, or sing into a microphone and make the lights in the forest change based on a song if you want to sing. And, you know, things really simple things or hug a tree and the tree changes color, you know, when you hug it. Um, that is so much fun. Yeah, and it, so yeah, people just gravitate to it, and they're they're doing very well financially too for the groups that do it. I mean, that's what also blew us away. People that's were something dying you can for this. Take they were your whole family it. too. So I mean, that's a that's a great way to experience nature and take your whole family, and you've really created an experience. Yeah, I think I think this thing, like I said, it's not the answer, but I think you know everything from these to the meow wolves. I think you're. I don't know if you're familiar with meow wolf but some of these other kind of experiential um, entertainment or just the way things are growing up around um, everything from train stations to stadiums to, you know, people are just kind of where they gather, they want to be surrounded by beauty, art, um, and kind of wonderment and surprise and storytelling um, without mm -hmm. it being too over the top. Like, I don't think, you know, I think there's a very big curatorial, you know, responsibility of, of hopefully not overwhelming though again maybe who knows maybe one generation you know of opinion of what overwhelming is is different than another's i think that's where that's where i'm trying to get you know other mm -hmm. people of different generations you know in involved because i probably have a completely different outlook than someone else so yeah that's a tough one to gauge because we're so inundated with imagery nowadays there's just screens and monitors everywhere in order to make a huge impact, you almost have to go smaller or even less flashy to really get somebody to stop and think for a moment. Yeah, well, that's uh, kind of what people are. I've kind of been talking about COVID, why COVID time has been so interesting. I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's both challenging 
<clears throat> it's scary for those people that don't have jobs or money or food and the, and I don't want to under you know don't overlook that but mm-hmm. at the same time I think for those of us that you know we have enough work I have an I have a nice enough home um and it's really been causing me to do a lot of asymmetrical thinking and it's been that disruption of my life and simplification of it in a way and I kind of call it like taking a shower with a cup of coffee <laughs> you know meaning that they they are there's great studies about why the shower is so great at asymmetrical thinking because you know you're in your own a new world it's not what you're doing normally and it causes your mind to wander you know, again some people take quick showers so maybe i take longer showers so i'm bad with water <laughs> but it, it's a really great place to have your brain explore things you've been you haven't thought about or you know create new ideas you know, sometimes driving in a car too, when you're, when you know the way they're saying, you know, you, you, your mind gets lost, hopefully you, you're still safe. But these, these opportunities for asymmetrical thinking are really important. And COVID to me has done that. It's like, what have, you know, what have we been doing right? What are we doing wrong? What are, you know, what can we do next? Um, you know, how, but at the same time saying, how do I survive? <laughs> It's really mm-hmm. interesting combination of things that I don't think has happened in, you know, I mean, to say everything's probably happened to some way or another in history, but, you know. Some uh, of my best and worst ideas come to me yeah. in the shower. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the time to just sit and be quiet and nobody can talk to you for just 15, 15 minutes. That's, that's Yeah, I use, I sadly was, you would used to use over, you know, international flights. I would try to not yeah. do work and either catch up on movies or just, you know, cut myself off from the normal, what I'd been doing all the time. And I think, you know, we have to learn to do that, in, you know, in other ways. I mean, some people do it with meditation. I do it by shoveling horse shit. <laughs> <laughs> Mindfulness, uh, mindful yeah. horse shit shoveling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's all of us, you know, getting out of our routine or creating mm-hmm. a routine that, you know, at least is getting us out of maybe doing things, you know, continually stuck in a rut or in the mud. Um, we'll see. Uh, like you said, it, it's going to be interesting to see how we come out of this and whether we are a different world or whether we're kind of get right back into our old ways. Yeah. Flights are my time to read. And because there's no Wi-Fi, I, I never get Wi-Fi on the planes. I just take time to read, and I just haven't had that for two months now. I'm trying to find <laughs> time to read with two kids and a dog. And I would yep. imagine for you having 68 legs running around, I would imagine it's really difficult to find time to read. Yeah, just no, I, take a break. No, no, there was a great, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head because I'm horrible about it, but it was Anna Kendrick of all that. Great philosopher Anna Kendrick said something like, you know, I'll never be able to tell myself that what would I do if I had the time mm-hmm. because or all the things I should have done when I had the time because, yep. you know, I mean, uh, when we come down, when we come out of this, will I have straightened out my room? <laughs> will I have gone through all the things I, you know, said I could have gone through? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. It's um, like I said, it's, you know, or John said, John Featherstone said that something about you know that the days seem to go slowly these but the weeks fly by i can't yeah. like i get to the end of the week and i'm the, uh, you know in covid land and i can't believe another week's gone by i mean we've been doing the my little happiness um videos that are kind of little um clips of the farm that i kind of do you know i won't i, I try not to do them professionally meaning 
I don't ever try to cut anything. It's just a live shot or as a collection of photos of the day. And But I'm up to, I think, day 58, which is really scary. They're amazing. I love all of them. Seeing you, the, the sheep running around and the goats, and it's amazing. Mm. I, I really we, appreciate them. We actually did the other day for um, a friend of mine who, who was at Carnegie, uh, and then she moved over to Disney and is now teaching at UCLA. We actually there, I don't know if you've seen that there is a um, a goat to meeting this uh, farm up in, up in, um, in the, the Northern California is offering their farm to like a Zoom meetings and like you can have a llama, rent a llama. And so she was doing a class with her themed entertainment designers, was teaching them about virtual tours. So we taught one of her classes by giving them a virtual tour of the farm which was awesome. And so wow. we did that last week and with, I think 30 or 40 people, MK Haley was the teacher. She's great. And, but it was a great idea. And so all of a sudden we're thinking, Hmm, could we do this for a living? <laughs> Virtual farm tours. Uh, when that becomes a thing, I might have to introduce you. We, <laughs> I support, uh, there's three freedom farms up here in Ontario. Maybe I'll have to hook you up when, uh, when this all becomes a, a real viable thing. Yeah. What's freedom when you say freedom farm? That sounds both uh, libertarian and farm like. <laughs> no, they're same as they're rescue farms. Uh, uh-huh. they, they they save uh, uh, one of them mostly save pigs from the factory farm industry, mm-hmm. and the other one does uh, primarily goats and anything that they can save from people that are neglecting. And uh, my wife and I we we support both of them and we take the kids out and we. I like uh, the name now. Donate. Freedom Farm. That's cool. Yeah, so I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll send you some more information. There's uh, Dara's Sanctuary, and Charlotte's Freedom Farm, and one other that I can't think of right now. But I take the kids out, and uh, it's just so important for kids to see animals up front and get to know them, and know that pigs aren't pork. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. pigs. They're, they're real animals with faces yep. and. If yeah. it's got a name, you can't eat it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I make sure to take the kids and uh, if the virtual thing becomes uh, something that people are paying to enjoy, I would be more than happy to connect to you guys. Mm-hmm. Cool. Awesome. So, uh, I wanted to ask you more about your time with the B-52s because some of the <laughs> photos you've been pay- posting re- lately look like it was a touring family how was yeah, that we, yeah it was actually i mean and those photos are from pat Irwin, who was one of the the keyboardist and guitar player and he he is tested positive for covid and oh. he's kind of been in recovery he's doing okay now but okay. he did it while he was in you know recovering from it and um put together that collection from the you know late 80s early 90s and um I mean, I think, you know, to me, one of the coolest things about the bees and, uh, and, and other people have gone through it, but I, I, it was my little slice of, we started the tour playing uh, clubs and quickly cosmic thing and, you know, Love Shack hit and, you know, like every, like, it's like the first month was clubs. The second month was like college theaters. The third month was real theaters. The fourth month was 4,000 to 5,000 seat, and then it was arenas. Um, so, you know, in, in, a, in six months, 
we quickly did that club to arena growth, which is really amazing to watch happen, to yeah. watch something flow and build and, and also have to adapt to it as a lighting designer and as a family, you know, and crew size, but lighting and, and just budgets and understanding, you know, and, and I think the, and the bees were always a little, um, they were very Athens, Georgia, and very, um, I think they always thought of themselves as a small, you know, a family and, and just, you know, fun loving. I mean, that you could tell in their music, it was like the, what we were trying to do was bring a party to your town. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and they were, you know, incredibly, um, what's the best way? I mean, they, you know, they, they were, they had their own whatever dynamic uh, that was happening, you know, amidst the, you know, a band, because bands go through all sorts of things. But I think that, you know, everything from uh, an inclusiveness of the crew, I mean, they would, when we were at the, you know, sort of at our height, we started it, but then kept it through the height when we travel by bus. There was one night a week that the band would come on our bus and travel to the city and we would just do this big dance party on the crew bus with the dance. So the band would you know, make sure they came on our bus and we would do, especially on a short hop, Mm -hmm. And maybe with a day off, we would do a, you know, massive party and uh, with them dancing in the bus with the entire band. It was, it was, I mean, I have amazing memories of that. And just, um, you know, a really great family, our technical director, our, you know, production manager, Dave Russell, um, who has passed a while ago, um, was just, you know, an amazing kind of great production manager, but also just really interested in the crew family and treating everyone like you know you didn't go on a tour that you didn't have fun on and that you weren't well taken care of and management everything it was just you know it was one of those rare experiences i don't know i mean i think you know many people do have them i think i i haven't toured in a while so and and certainly it wasn't not a business then but it was certainly before the days of streaming where concerts were the only money i think i think people were still making a lot of money off albums so touring was, you wanted to make money on the tour, but it wasn't as important now as, you know, where you have to eke every penny out of it. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so I think there was maybe that, that attitude has changed. I don't know, you know, I'd be interested to talk to people that tour these days. And I certainly know a lot of light designers, but I don't talk to them about the stories of touring anymore to know, is it fun? Are people enjoying it or is it just a business now and you may know more about that from talking to other guests but. Uh, the bigger the tour the more business it is yeah yeah uh-huh yeah yep. and so it's you know but we we i had fun and you know it's like it's like touring at its best i mean it's sort of that camp experience and that the great tours like you don't have to think very much on a great tour you know you're taken mm -hmm. to places everything's there for you the catering and so you really can just um do your job well because you don't have to think about where your meal's coming from you don't have to think about you know how where you're going to stay or sleep and you know the work is hard when you're working i mean we would do i was always a i wasn't just the ld but i was a lighting crew member i was the the low person on the lighting crew um just uh you know i did it to kind of keep myself busy so i wouldn't get into bad things <laughs> um and you know so i was like the trust bolter um you know i was the 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 meat of the the least thinking person on the crew and but i'd get up you know in the morning and lay out the rig and and put the put the system together and be there for focus and be there all the way so i'd be there from you know 8 a.m till 2 a.m or whatever um 
you know, and, and so it was good to have, make sure that when you were doing that, you enjoyed what you're doing, you were doing with a family and you were being treated well. And the bees was just, you know, the optimum experience. And, you know, I mean, but we were discounting going through those photos. I think we did a week at Radio City Music Hall and, wow. you know, like that was, I remember those, that, that experience is one of the most amazing, you know, times of my life, just that. And I think we're, I remember, we did a week at House of Blues in New Orleans and we were kind of adopted by House of Blues and that crazy New Orleans crew and, you know, the, you know, or Halloween at the Fox Theater in Atlanta or, you know, just really great crazy shows. Um, a week at Universal Amphitheater where I remember being introduced to like the cast of Beetlejuice and Ruth Buzzy and all the old laughing folks. Like the, the bees had the craziest, you know, kind of followers and they would, you know, both, you know, come around, but just attract the most amazing people. It sounds like you were actually a party rolling from town to town and, uh, and uh, taking the party vibe from, uh, from venue to venue. Absolutely. And we tried to, like I said, it was, we did some early stuff. I mean, you know, we were, we had by no means a huge budget, but we tried to, you know, we, we definitely were experimenting with bringing the lighting out over the audience with, I think we had tiki lamps to begin with and then, you know, audience trusses and just, you know, really turning it into a dance party. Um, that sounds really fun. Yeah. And it was, like I said, it was, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't, I mean, I don't know what the, it wasn't the infancy of concerts. It was kind of right in the middle of a really mm -hmm. big time. And, um, you know, and I, I mean, that was, it was an act I, you know, I certainly, you know, had fun doing that. And meanwhile, you know, at FM and some of the other things where I wasn't the lighting designer, but was associated with some major tours and got to meet a lot of people and, you know, you know, dealt with, I mean, when I was both doing sets and lighting and sets and project management, you know, between the Bowie tours and, you know, a lot of the big, um, you know, Mark Fisher tours just, you know, got, you know, him at his height of, um, doing some amazing big stadium shows, all the Bill Graham day on the greens. And, you know, we really kind of got, I got to live the big world. And then, you know, we did a lot of, we did the Rolling Stones and the U2 and Pink Floyd at FM and got to be in the middle of all and meet all those amazing people, Mark Brickman, I guess I Mark Fisher, Patrick Woodruff, you know, just being amongst that, kind of education was just invaluable to me and I, that's what I keep telling everyone just you know dive into it if you're looking how to you know learn about the business just go do it you know I, I'm having a really hard time fighting the the song in my head the Rome if you want to roam around the world <laughs> it can't help yeah. it yeah no, I know I know well there was <laughs> like I said they were party songs somewhere in the world for a while there that song was always on just like I mean yeah. we did lighting for Steve Miller too. And, um, you know, that someone told me, yeah, there's always a Steve Miller song on somewhere in the world. <laughs> yeah. If you're in this industry long enough, you can't be in an elevator or a retail shop anymore without hearing one of your clients on the radio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, it's a great experience. And I did it when I was, you know, I, I can't think about touring now. It's, I'm very happy to be doing, you know, transitioning into the world that I have transitioned into as, you know, in light switch, both, you know, as I'm getting, I'm going to be 60 this year. Congratulations. And, <laughs> and, you know, kind of realizing that as I've gotten older, 
And as our company's gotten bigger, that I've had to take a more managerial role. And, you know, that transition can be terrifying for some, and it has been for me, but it's also been really satisfying in learning what it means to manage. Um, Sometimes I'm good at it, sometimes I'm not, but, um, and and to really, you know, kind of lead and, and set the tone for the way a company should work and both, um, you know, in the way you behave, but also the way you design and also, you know, through um, to be able to, to set a group or groups of people out on doing, you know, we're probably working on in my office, 50 to 100 jobs a year, maybe, you know, easily. And so and some of them have timelines. I mean, when we were doing events, some of them were, you know, a, a day or a week and others were two to three years if they're architecture. And so it's that great, you know, kind of managing the people that are in charge of it and setting up teams and it's being more of a, almost a producer um, and a manager and it's I've learned how to do it slowly and it's become very satisfying to me and, and I still do designs I went off to Universal and did a design for a Christmas show last year and with Moment Factory was doing the content it's just a really satisfying great experience uh, Brian Stone Street was the, the set designer and just really fun um, thing, but I actually got in the trenches and did the cues and, you know, worked with, with everyone, but I don't do that as much anymore. I, I find myself really kind of trying to manage teams of people doing it and learning how to make that satisfying. And it is, it is very satisfying. That sounds wonderful. So thank you so much for taking the time. I, I feel like uh, this conversation would never end if we didn't uh, have any sort of time restraint, but yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. I look forward to chatting in real life when we return to some semblance of normalcy again. Great. Yeah. Thanks for uh, giving me the time. It's been, it's been fun.